0: So we are continuing this, this summer conversation that we're calling Culture Creators, where we explore um, glimpses in the scriptures that help us understand what does it look like to create a culture that represents Jesus, not just to respond to the culture around us, but to create something that, uh, that, that makes a difference and that forms, that forms a community that looks a bit more like Christ in the kingdom that Jesus talked about. And so... Uh, So, the past weeks, we talked about what it looks like to create a culture of boldness and humility, to create a culture of of caring, fostering, caring for things that might outlast you or that you might not get to see the result of, but we love anyways, Uh, the willingness to go first, to look at the world and find the good, to share the journey with others, and then um, today we're going to talk about what it means to participate and create a culture in where we expect things to continue changing in us. you, you know, we love to say God is unchanging. <clears throat> and, and, and in many ways, that is, that is beautiful and true, and certainly. Um, and, uh, and the consistent care and love of God is the same, like we sing, the same through the ages, right? God's love does not change. However, we're told in one of the most foundational verses in the entire scripture that, um, that God became, the word became flesh, that God changed. For the sake of caring for his creation. That, that, that God became something new even. And, and yes, as uncomfortable as that might want to make you, that's exactly what the, the Greek is communicating in John 1. When it said the word became flesh. Became means transformed into something new. So God, God changed. Uh, not in God's character. Not in God's uh, love. Not in God's uh, consistency of, of, of power and sustaining. But certainly God God changed, and and so I I say that because sometimes I wonder if we uh, accidentally forget that change is a really, really good, important part of discipleship, Uh, ongoing, a part of the the journey, and uh, and that it's healthy and necessary, and we may even say it's required if we're to be faithful disciples. We really enjoyed, uh, Bethany and I, this past season, I wrote about this if you follow our Together for for uh, good newsletters. I wrote about this maybe two three weeks ago, but Bethany and I have really enjoyed the season of Loki, the the six episode season that was just released. I don't know if any of the rest of you tuned into that at all. Uh, Some of you don't. I'm not. Oh, I'm not going to give any spoilers. Don't worry. If that's what the is that for spoilers? Don't worry. No spoilers. (coughs) No spoilers. Just major thematic elements. So. So anyways, uh, we really enjoyed it. We're, we're actually sad. They release on Wednesdays, so we're kind of sad that this Wednesday we won't have one because uh, it's, it's wrapped up. But, um, but there, there's a whole bunch of great themes, and if you don't know what this is all about, Loki is the brother of Thor, kind of the evil brother, the villain brother in the, uh, the Marvel movies, um, and he is the god of mischief, okay? And so anyways, this spinoff kind of follows him once he gets arrested and in trouble for doing something. And that's not important. What's important is, um, is that within the theme of this show is that, uh, that Loki is told over and over that who he is is the antagonist. Because something, something changes. There's this thing called the sacred timeline. Okay? And the sacred timeline is essentially the way things should be and the way things have to be. All right? And, and it's just this, this world and people are who they are and they have purposes, and they have who they're always going to be, and you can't vary from that. If you are, you get, anybody remember the word? Pruned, it's called. Essentially, if you vary from the path that you're supposed to be, if you change too much, something goes wrong, they find you they arrest you, and they delete you, and another version from the multiverse of you takes over. We won't get into the multiverse. But anyways, um, so, so yes, it's fantasy, it's, it's crazy, but the whole idea, the whole idea that Loki explores throughout this whole thing is if he wants to change, can he? Is it even possible for him to change both his character and his direction, or is it fixed and set? And that, that is the question. So the entire time, he's battling, if I desire to change, if I don't want to be the same villain, if I don't want to be the deceitful one, if I don't want to be the liar or the backstabber, can I? Do I have that choice, or is this just who I am? It's really, really, really fascinating, but it's also, the, the second layer is also about free will. How much choice, not just can I change character, but can I change my future, or is my future locked in and on track? And we're not really going to get into the free will debate about, about um, well, actually we can, yeah, God gives us free will, so we're, we'll, yeah, okay, so we're just going to leave that there, um, I'm, not, I'm not a particularly good Calvinist, um, I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters, but I am far from it, and I, I believe the scriptures are too, um, so, okay, but that's not why we came today, we came today to talk about, about change, um, and so anyways, uh, so here's, here's the point. The point is that in our world, we often think that there is a way that things have to go and that have to be, and even if we think that we have free will, we also kind of play into this world of like, no, this is how lives are supposed to go. This is what it looks like to live as an American in Delaware, right? Like this is just the way I do it, you know? I I remember when we bought a house last year, we downsized, um, and that was odd to a lot of people right? Uh, because that's not what you do. <laughs> you wait, and then you buy bigger and better and bigger and better. But we love the location. We like the lifestyle that it was going to lead us to, and we wanted to get a smaller house. And now, um, I wish I had a home office instead of my bedroom, but everything else is wonderful. But, but we didn't follow the, the way that a lot of people think you have to go, right? And, and it, it was odd for some people. So, all these themes. So, enter Jesus into The Loki story—he doesn't actually; he's not a character in there. Although there was a big reveal in the final episode about who controls everything, and I was going to be like, "Is it Jesus?" No, it wasn't. It wasn't everyone. There's your, there's your uh, spoiler. Okay, all right. So embracing Jesus not only means embracing the the beauty of, of of free will of a world in which we are given the opportunity to fully respond to the love of God but also a world in which true dramatic shifts are possible. All right? In this world, people can be fully transformed. They can change their lives, their callings, their behaviors, their attitudes, their forever trajectory. Because God is a God who calls us into what's next. I want to talk briefly, just kind of bounce off of two stories of dramatic change uh, that we see in the scriptures. One is really obvious, and the other requires just a little bit of background and imagination, okay? And so the, the first one uh, is, uh, is the story of the man who wrote our first gospel. His name was Matthew, also known as Levi. That happens. It's weird for us, but people went by multiple names depending on context, story, and uh, who's telling it in terms of, of if it was a Gentile storyteller, Jewish storyteller, anything. Anyways, so this guy's name is Matthew. And Matthew writes a story about what his experiences were with Jesus. He never uses any first person, so you'd never even realize that it's him. But at least church history, and there's not a whole lot of debate that the Matthew who wrote the first gospel is also the Matthew who is called in Matthew 9. Um, So here's the story it's quite simple. Jesus went on, where's my, there it is. Um, in Matthew 9, Jesus, Jesus is going, going on between towns, between um, healings, between teachings, right? And he sees a man, it's so, such a simple story. He sees a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Let me just make sure there's no more to the story there. Nope. All right. Actually, there is a little more to the story. I forgot. That was supposed to be a joke, and then I forgot that we're going to talk about the next two verses, too. There is a little more to the story, but not about Matthew himself, okay? So here's the point. The point is I'm not going to get all the way back into the the whole cultural of tax collectors because some of you have heard this and you're just so sick of it, but I am going to give a one-minute version. So a tax collector is often talked about in the scripture with sinners, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. Like it's, it's a category, right? And the reason that it's a category is that the, the, the moral failure or the ethical failure of the tax collector was that tax collectors were extortionists. They were all Jewish who worked for the Romans for the occupying power uh, and against their own people. And the reward for doing that job was that the Romans were a little bit like, look the other way about exactly how much the taxes were. As long as the tax collectors delivered on what Romans required, they could do anything else. And Rome would say, hey, there, that's, the, that's the law. What they say is the law. So if the tax was $5, they could say, sorry, tax is $7.50 this week. And there was no higher authority that you could go to to call them on it because they were in the pockets, because the Romans really appreciated the tax collectors, the Jewish tax collectors working against their own people so they didn't have to get involved. All right? And so anyways, these, these men um, were really looked like at with disgust. And they were, they were people who were seen as betrayers of their own people. They were greedy. Um, they were kind of liars. So, so they had a pretty poor reputation. All right? So, um, <coughs> so that's, that's what's coming. So Jesus comes around, and Jesus has been proclaiming this kingdom, a kingdom, uh, a kingdom that, that God partici- uh, particularly cares for the poor, of which a tax collector was making more of, right? Tax collectors taking people who are already struggling and making them poorer, so that wouldn't have been a real exciting element to hear. But also a kingdom full of radical grace, a kingdom where God's love is not separated by a royal priesthood where, where God's love is accessible, where people like tax collectors who would never be allowed inside the temple gates were welcomed into God's family if they so chose. And so Jesus comes and he invites this man and this man is seemingly like the magic words of Jesus, follow me, just gets up and takes off. But if we think that Jesus was just magic, then we miss why it might have been so compelling for a tax collector to change his entire trajectory and walk into something brand new. And so we have to understand that, that, <clears throat> that when Jesus invites people to follow him, when Jesus talks about this kingdom of God as a beautiful banquet that everyone is invited into and some people say, sorry, sorry. Not really what I want, and he says, "Okay, I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to find it. I'm going to invite anybody in, even the ones you don't think should be invited to banquets." This this is the storyline that explains all of that. Okay, so I want you to think, as you as you consider this story, um, as you consider um, Matthew. Did I say? I'm so sorry. If you're looking this up, <clears throat> that's. Oh no, we are in Matthew. Sorry, my. I, I wrote Mark down in, in handwriting. We're all good. You're good. So while, here's what happens next. He gets up and he follows him. First of all, let's, let's just talk about what, what truths a calling like that communicates. Number one, experiencing love and compassion at the hands of Jesus, at least for Matthew, is more compelling than a life of influence and wealth. And let me tell you, a life of influence and wealth Living well during an occupying time, that's a pretty powerful temptation. But apparently the message that Jesus was giving was so beautiful and so good that someone who had money, someone who had a comfortable lifestyle, was willing to say, I'm just going to pick up and follow the opportunity that this man is giving me to be a disciple and to learn from him because what I'm hearing and seeing is way better, even than this life that I have. So number one. Number two is hearing Jesus speak your name seems to have a powerful impact over and over in the scriptures. And Jesus seems to look around and find surprising people and speak their names and call out to them. And what we see is when Jesus pursues people, The transformation is real and the transformation is major. When people respond to Jesus' call, their lives take a completely new direction. Um, And sometimes what we see here, saying yes to Jesus means a whole lot of unknowns. Like Matthew got up and followed him. That was like, he didn't say, hey, let me explain to you what it means to be a disciple here. Let's talk about this. Matthew just got up and didn't know where he was going outside of the fact that he was following Jesus. Let's just sit with that for a second. Matthew didn't really know where he was going outside of the fact that he was going after Jesus. So the future was not figured out. I guess we might say one of these was going on right here. And we don't know. We don't know. And Matthew just gets up and he does the thing that he's not supposed to do. He's got it good. I mean, he's not liked, but he's got everything else. He's liked by the Romans. And boom, his life goes on a different trajectory. Even not knowing where it's going to end, but knowing that he's following Jesus and it's worth the risk. And then the final thing that I think is fascinating is in the story, it continues. And Jesus goes and has dinner at Matthew's house. So, so Matthew decides to follow him and then Jesus is kind of giving a real life experience of the banquets that he speaks about and talks about it, that the kingdom is like. So, so he has dinner and many tax collectors and sinners came and he ate with him and, his, uh, and ate with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, the leaders, the ones who are very aware of all the purity laws about reputation, about who is seen with who and how that affects them, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, and I, I have to wonder, I have to wonder if, uh, if Matthew was within earshot of this because you kind of expect that, uh, that the the Pharisees were really kind of interested in, in what they looked like from the front, holiness. And so you kind of, I, I don't know. We don't, we don't know how this conversation took place, but I kind of imagine that they stood there and asked this within earshot of everybody. Why would you eat with tax collectors and sinners? But who knows? Maybe it's a private conversation. But here's how Jesus' response responds to that. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. And then he quotes the Old Testament. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. (laughs) What if that was within earshot of Matthew? How would you respond if you heard that? Would you be offended? Because, because, I, I think it's a fascinating statement that Jesus just straight up says, listen, I, I've come, like he doesn't, he doesn't affirm this guy's choices. He actually calls him a sinner and says, yeah, he's done some, some messed up things. He said, but, I, but that's, I, I came for that. I came to turn people's lives around, the ones who need it. And I can just imagine Matthew hearing that, having just given up his old life and hearing it with a smile and a welcome. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that was a little bit hard for him to hear, but maybe, maybe change happens when we truly admit that we need the help, when we are so open about the fact that I don't know what I need. I just know, Jesus, that you, you tell me that you will come and meet me in my need, so I'm just going to say, I need you. Like, we sing that sometimes. We need you, Lord. We need you. Every hour. Every hour. Like there's this ongoing reality that Jesus seems to be most available to transform us when we are most aware that we need transformation. Rarely does Jesus work against, completely against our desires. I do believe sometimes that happens where God kind of nudges us in a direction. But I think often we, we have the biggest life change when we finally say, okay, I'm available. Maybe it's in the midst of horrible circumstances. But there's something, something really, really beautiful there. So, so I, I think sometimes if we're willing to say and put ourselves like in the position of Matthew of admitting that, boy, there are some areas where I'm still sick in my life. There are some areas where, where the way I look at myself, the way I look at God, the way I look at the world, the way I look at other people just isn't, isn't right. That grace hasn't, hasn't gotten where I think it probably is. Wants to get yet in me if Jesus is in charge of my life. And we admit that, that all of a sudden we become open and available for tremendous amounts of change. So sometimes change happens in a life trajectory that when someone chooses to trust and follow Jesus, it's a complete turnaround. But sometimes change happens in other ways too. And change happens with the direction that our lives take when we become emboldened by the ongoing experience with Jesus, I want to tell you a story about a woman named Priscilla. And Priscilla is a fascinating character in the scriptures. Um, she's talked about, she and, um, and her husband, uh, Aquila, are talked about like seven times they're mentioned in the scriptures. But here's what's really interesting. In five of those times, I think, see the four or five, her name is listed first, which is a really cultural oddity. Very, very different and very strange, okay? So most of the time, uh, women... In Jewish context wouldn 't even really be mentioned except for in passing. but in this case we 're told uh, again and again that Priscilla is one of the key players in a few, uh, a few experiences that happen. They meet um, in uh, Corinth, I believe, and then they, then they travel eventually to ephesus and paul Paul uh, he works with them they 're both tent makers, so Paul connects with them because they 're kind of doing the same thing. they love the Lord, they, they come to know Jesus. But they have these gifts of leadership, and we see that specifically that Priscilla is often the one leading the way in terms of the labels in the house church movement, but also in this one movement where this guy Apollos, I'm sure you've heard of him, right? Apollos was one of the early Christian leaders and and, and, uh, teachers. In, In the book of Acts, it's mentioned that Apollos, he was a very dynamic speaker. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He got really excited about it, and here's what we're told in Acts 18, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So in other words, there were a couple of areas that he still needed to be set straight about Jesus, although they saw his heart was good. And they came and said, here's this, this big leader, and they said, can we, can we talk with you a little bit? We'd, we'd like to teach you a little more about what you're passionate about. And Paul affirms their work here. And later on in... Uh, in um, the book of Romans, he, he reminds the church, and there's this beautiful stuff, he reminds the church, to greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what you have to remember. These were Jewish people. They were kicked out of um, their original home where, my memory's shaky at this exact second. Where'd they come from originally? Um, they came from Rome. Uh, originally and they had been kicked out by claudius because of his persecution of the jewish people so we know that they're jewish no question because paul worked with greeks and jewish people here's what's interesting as a jewish woman priscilla she couldn't go past when they would go to worship in the temple she couldn't go past the court of women there was literally a line where a woman couldn't walk past in order to worship god so just imagine priscilla learning the story of jesus And learning that when Jesus resurrected, the first person he revealed himself to was a woman, and she was given the message to go and proclaim it. And just imagine seeing this early church movement pop up and looking at all of these disciples of which we know were a significant amount of women and apostles. Paul talks in in Romans, Paul uses a woman named Phoebe to deliver the letter and then interpret it for everybody else. And he says, you better treat her well. Now, Phoebe was a, a Greek, so she may have been more... Uh, comfortable in an environment where, uh, where the view was different. Otherwise, I'd probably be talking about her this morning. But Priscilla pops out to me, even though we don't know that much about her, because I can only imagine that at one point in her life, she said, I've never been, I've never been told that God could use me in a way like this, but I sense it. I sense that I've got the mind and the heart and the skills and the calling to teach, to lead. But if I step out, it's going to be going in a completely different direction than most any of my other friends, family, even culture have done before. This is going to be a huge change. And so the trajectory shifts, and she responds. And because she responds, her partnership with so many other men and women lead to what we're doing right now in terms of learning to live as the church. Thousands of years later. Like, you understand that, right? You understand that when we talk about these stories, these are not disconnected. These stories don't happen, neither do we. It's incredibly inspiring to understand that. And so people, so, so sometimes when we talk about all of these, you know, the, these moments of change, we tend to think about the moment of surrender to Jesus at the beginning, which is so beautiful and so crucial and so important. The come and follow me first calling that we hear. And some of you maybe are, not, maybe are, are still exploring what that looks like, of saying yes to Jesus in that way. And so we, we trust that God is a God who calls us from our tax collector desks and into radical discipleship, but also from our societal boxes, whatever they might be, into living ambassadors of God's kingdom. And, and, and so the body of Christ is a living culture where we expect big things to happen in life over and over again, where it becomes unsurprising to see huge life changes when people trust Jesus with their lives at first and when people trust their lives to Jesus over and over and over and over again. That's the culture that we long to create here at LifePath, a culture where it's unsurprising for people to make massive changes in their lives because of Jesus. Whether that's someone taking a step and saying, yes, I, I want to fully trust Jesus as a disciple. I want to get baptized. I think if anyone's interested in this, we're going to talk about it. But I think uh, the 29th, 20, maybe 22nd, I think 22nd, we're, we're looking at possibly doing a baptism if there's people who want to express their lives in that way, which is such a beautiful step that we encourage every disciple of Jesus to take. But maybe maybe that's it. But maybe... Maybe it's, it's not just that moment, and it's, it's not just the big, the big changes that occur um, at the beginning. Maybe it's that we hear Jesus' voice calling us into something new, and when someone shares that within our church, we're like, yeah, we kind of expect that this sort of thing would happen. We kind of expect that people are like, wow, I am changing my job because Jesus seems to be stirring something, or I am leaning into this with my life and my calling Forest season or I'm changing the way that I do this or I started learning about something that I wasn't really aware of in terms of a compassion area or something like that and I'm realizing God wants me to do something about this and so I'm going to put my time, my energy into doing something I just don't want us to be surprised when this happens there is no sacred timeline because it's all sacred, all the possibilities of where Jesus might call us to, it's all sacred God is with us in every one of those directions where God may lead us in something, something new. What would happen if we expected to be changing all the time because of Jesus rather than being surprised by it? What, what would happen if we longed for it, if we prayed for it, if we celebrated, it, if we encouraged it more? Can you imagine? Some of us have gotten pretty used to being isolated within our own families during this past year and a half. What if because of Jesus you found yourself committing to regular discipleship relationships in new ways this fall? What if some of you that have started relying on your phone or news media or food or alcohol or other distractions to get you through the challenge of life, what if you asked a friend for encouragement were honest in a new way and used your time to seek healing with Jesus healthy friendships? What if you took new steps? What if you stopped withdrawing and started opening up in a new way? What if that changed you? (sighs) Now, let's not act like changes happen overnight. They don't, and the body sometimes certainly lags behind the heart, so it has to start with a desire to be changed and a belief in Jesus' power. There's there's this story in Mark. (coughs) That's why I was confused with Mark 9, because we started talking about Matthew 9, and I just wanted to mention this Mark 9 passage at one point before we, uh, we wrapped up. Um, there's this, this story where uh, there's a boy who, uh, who was having convulsions. There was a, a spirit, <clears throat> an evil spirit within him. And the boy, and, and Jesus has compassion and asks how long he's been like this. And, and then the, the, the father responds, and then he says, uh, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus, Jesus' question, he he follows it up. Some of you might be familiar. He goes, if you can? <laughs> That's what Jesus says. It's like, did you say if? Said, if you can do anything, Jesus. And he said, did you, did you really just say if? Because the idea is, if if we are open and desiring it, Jesus is more than capable of bringing healing, change, new direction. And it's beautiful. And and he responds by saying, yes, I do believe you can. Help my unbelief, which is such a beautiful response that we need to say over and over again. I, I, yeah, sometimes I think if, and then help my unbelief, Lord. I believe that you can transform this part of me. I believe you can lead me in a new direction. I believe you can change things. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and so the question is, are, are we willing to embrace the change that Jesus is able to bring in us? Are we willing to start looking for it in our culture, in our church, in others? Change in heart and change in direction. Later, by the way, Jesus tells his disciples that something like that can only come out through prayer. Deep-rooted, deep-seated transformation like this requires sitting deeply with God, wrestling, discerning, listening. Um, so back to the Loki series for just a minute and the sacred timeline, right? The premise is that people couldn't be given free will. The authorities couldn't allow anyone to stray from the assumed path because if they did, the world would break into chaos. Okay, so that's it. We can't, we can't just let people do whatever they want because the world would go to chaos and, and reality will fracture altogether. Again, this, this just made me think about discipleship. We shouldn't be afraid, first of all, of a little chaos in our lives that may result from new steps of faith. We shouldn't be afraid of that. Because rather than actual chaos, what it'll lead is to incredible freedom in Christ. It might be chaos with the way the rest of the world looks at, like, nice orderly lives where you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to retire like this and you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to have two and a half kids and whatever the case might be. You know, I always wonder about that half kid, poor kid. Um, but, but anyways, you know, I, I think for us to, to step into this and, and say, listen, I don't mind the uncertainty, like Matthew, of stepping into faith in a new way. If what the changes will be will be a life that reflects the character of Jesus more and follows Jesus' unique calling in my own life. Uh, I, I certainly hope I'll, I'll, be, I'll be gentle with some of your names, but I, but I know some of you have done this, <laughs> you know, and, and so some of you that I know aren't going to get upset at me. You know, Jess became a children's book author, our worship leader up here, Jess, um, because Jesus stirred this vision of redemptive care out of her expertise in brain science, and she realized that she could transla- translate that in a new way, right? Ian left his job recently to become an environmental mediator to compassionately care for God's earth in new ways. Someone very new into our community told me a couple weeks ago that in the past she had felt this disconnection from God and she decided to lean into real prayer, maybe for the first time in her life, and it transformed her life. And she met God in a new way. And part of that is why she's here. Life changes stemming from Jesus. Some of you have given away thousands of dollars to the poor. Some of you have spent decades educating others about Racism to move our world toward equity and compassion. Life-changing moves spurred and inspired by Jesus. And some of you, you just keep showing up despite the trauma that you've experienced at the hands of churches in the past. You have good reason to desert it forever. But Jesus changed your heart to come back to be a part of making the body of Christ as best as we can with integrity, what it was meant to be, imperfectly for sure, but to participate in creating a better culture. What transformation Jesus is bringing with these sorts of things. Some of you, Jesus has just simply made more patient. (laughs) Some of you, Jesus has made less judgmental, real changes in your life. Some of you, Jesus has changed the way that you see yourself, the way that you deal with stress. Some of you, Jesus has enabled you to walk away from really destructive habits. And it's all miraculous and it's all extraordinary and it's all normal in the kingdom. So we should expect it because that's what happens when we encounter Jesus.